there's a um, there's an outline of my sermon on the inside of the uh, Connect card there if you find that useful. Uh, it, it does seem to me, I was thinking during the week, that our, so- our society is pretty confused when it comes to the issue of adultery. Uh, on the one hand, uh, cheating on someone, uh, having an affair with someone, being sexually unfaithful to someone, uh, that still seems to be one of the worst things that someone can do, doesn't it? Uh, Gabby and I uh, have a, a really good friend. She was in a long-term relationship. It, it was about six years uh, very serious, I was talking about getting married. Uh, uh, neither our friend or her partner are Christians. Uh, as far as we know, uh, aside from Gabby and I, none of their friends were Christians. Uh, but when her partner got drunk and cheated on her, uh, he was universally condemned. Right? It was a dog act, right? It was the ultimate betrayal. It didn't matter who you were, uh, you thought that was wrong. Right? Why is that? Well, presumably because on some level we think that sex is precious. Sex is a kind of exclusive thing. You should only be having sex with one person at a time. Monogamy is key. I don't don't know if you've heard stories like that, but it seems to me that that's one perspective that our culture has. Uh, But then I read a a recent survey published in The Age and I saw that only 51% of people aged under 30 say that their ideal relationship would be monogamous. Or you can look that up, just 51%. For people aged 30 to 44, it was 58%. For 45 to 64, it was 63%. And for people older than 65, it was 70%. So from that perspective, it seems like sexual faithfulness, monogamy, it's slowly going out of date. Right? It's out of fashion. So in our culture, we're more with Ashley Madison, who says, life is short, so have an affair. You know, spice things up a bit. Or Scarlett Johansson, who recently said in Vanity Fair, I think the idea of marriage is very romantic. Right? It's a beautiful thing. But I don't think it's natural to be monogamous. So I think as we live in our world, we get these two conflicting messages. Which is it? Is sex precious? Therefore, faithfulness is very important. Or is sex just another biological appetite to be satisfied? So monogamy is a kind of quaint idea. If you're over 65 and we all look at those long-term married couples and think, oh, I wish I could be like that, but it's unnatural now. Like for us more enlightened types, us more progressive types. Which is it? That's the context in which we come to this passage from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's about adultery. You would have got that. But you would have noticed that it's not just about adultery, it's also about lust. And I think if our society is confused about adultery, it's even more confused about lust. In general, our society thinks lust is no big deal. It's natural, it's normal. Everybody's doing it. What's the big deal? So if you look at advertising and books and TV shows and movies and pop songs, all of them know. All of them are playing on our lusts, at least to some extent, whether they be sexual or otherwise. And by and large, our society says that's fine. It's perfectly fine. In fact, if you're visiting today, particularly if you're not a Christian, Uh, You probably heard those few verses read uh, and thought, that confirms everything I have ever thought about Christianity. 
Right there it is, right there in black on black and white. Like Christians are uptight about sex. They're negative about sex. They, they want to avoid sex at all costs. Look at it right there. Jesus says, uh, you will go to hell if you even lust after someone else. There it is. And if uh, that's a kind of a reasonable response. If this passage is all you have ever heard about Christian teaching on sex, I can understand how you might think that. You could easily think that Christians have this negative view of sex. In fact, this is one of the big obstacles to people taking Christianity seriously. I can't take it seriously because what Christianity has to say about sex is just so conservative, so outdated, so prudish. So I hope today that as we take a deeper look at these few verses, we're going to explore the Christian view of sex and lust and marriage. I hope... Uh, that you'll see that, uh, that this perspective, the Christian perspective, far from being an obstacle to Christianity, is actually one of the most attractive uh, aspects of the Christian faith. Uh, so as we look at these verses, I want us to see uh, three things. Uh, you can see them there in the sermon outline. Uh, the preciousness of sex, uh, the problem of lust, and uh, where we can get the power to be free from lust. Three things. So let's look at the preciousness of sex first. Uh, Bryce has touched on the context a little bit in his intro, uh, but this is the second of six passages uh, where Jesus is correcting the the false interpretations of God's law that the Pharisees and teachers of the law are promoting. They were mentioned uh, back in verse 20 of chapter 5. And these false interpretations of God's law are leading to false definitions uh, of what it means to live righteously. What does righteousness look like? What does a life that pleases God look like? Uh, Last week we saw that the Pharisees were convinced that uh, to obey the sixth commandment, you remember God gave his people ten commandments, right? To to obey the sixth commandment, uh, you shall not murder, uh, the Pharisees thought they simply had to avoid murdering people. Uh, But Jesus said, "You, you guys just don't get it. You don't get it. That, that command, Jesus says, was never just about not murdering others. It was about treating other people with dignity and respect, no matter who they are. About not harbouring unrighteous anger and contempt in your heart towards people. In this passage, Jesus moves on to the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. I have a look at verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said... Right, that that's by the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Right, you have heard that it was said uh, that you shall not commit adultery. So what's going on here? Right, that the Pharisees once again thought that they and their disciples uh, were so righteous. Right, they were so impressive. Uh, they were so obedient to God's law uh, simply because they hadn't committed the outward act of adultery. Right, that they ticked that box. Oh, but Jesus pushes deeper, right? He says the intention of God's law is not just about the outward act of adultery. It's that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Right? It's not just about outward actions. It's about inward desires and attitudes in your heart. So how do I get from this verse to the preciousness of sex? Maybe a bit of a long go. I don't think so. It's more about what Jesus doesn't say than what he does say. Right? It's about what he doesn't say uh, than what he does say. But because there's no suggestion here from Jesus uh, that there's something wrong with sex itself. 
or that there's something wrong with the sexual desires that God created. There's no suggestion here uh, that sex and sexual desire is anything other than good and glorious and precious, right? Lust is a problem. We'll talk about that in a bit, but sex is precious. And that's the consistent message of the, the whole Bible. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, the, the very first chapter of the Bible, uh, God uh, creates male and female. And then what does he tell them? He says, be fruitful and multiply. Right? God invented sex. God likes sex. It, it's his idea. He thinks it's a good idea. At the end of chapter 1, God says that everything in his creation is very good, including sex. In chapter 2, God brings Adam and Eve together. It's the first marriage. And Adam says, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Right? It's a poem. It, it's, a, it's a song. So Adam sees Eve. He's overcome by her beauty. And all he can do is break out in this poem, in this song. And that's what all cultures do, isn't it? That's why most cultures are full of ordinary poetry or love songs. Right? So this is what happens when you love someone. And so here we have in, in the second chapter of the Bible, Adam, uh, who's completely naked, uh, singing a love song to his wife, who's also completely naked. And all that is happening in, in the presence of God with his blessing. And then you've got Song of Songs, uh, which is basically one extended love song. It's a celebration of the sexual love between husband and wife. Uh, for example, if you've got a Bible, you could open the Song of Songs if you like, but if you can't find it, I'll, I'll read some sections out. Uh, song of Songs, chapter 7, uh, reading from verse 7. The, the, the husband uh, is really excited about having sex. He sees his wife approaching, and this is what he says, Song of Songs 7, verse 7, uh, Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb that palm, I will take hold of its fruit. But you, you get it? It's pretty vivid, right here in the Bible. A celebration of a husband actually taking hold of his wife's breasts. It's there in the Bible, with God's endorsement. In chapter 5, the wife's looking at her husband and, and she says, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His hair is wavy and black as a raven, his lips like lilies dripping with myrrh. His body is like polished ivory decorated with jewels. His mouth is sweetness itself. And perhaps you think, well, that, that's not quite as vivid. But it actually is, like, it's even more vivid, probably. It's just that our uh, translations obscure it a little bit. Because when the woman says, uh, your body is like polished ivory, uh, the word body uh, is just the word for, uh, elsewhere in the Bible, it's translated as intestines, kind of internal organs. Like, it's not the guy's six-pack, that's the point. It's pointing to something else. And the word polished ivory, the word for ivory there, it is used for tooth. It's used for prong. It's used for tusk. So I probably don't need to join the dots. right? If you read the whole chapter, the wife's working her way down her husband's body and she gets to his ivory tusk. 
Now, why go into all that, right? It's not just to make you feel uncomfortable or to be a bit risque and, and bust me. I, I just want you to see, particularly if, if you're not a Christian, uh, that Christianity does not have a negative view of sex. Not at all. Christianity celebrates sex. Christianity celebrates uh, sexual desire. That's a good thing. It's to be celebrated, it's to be enjoyed, uh, but only within marriage. Only within marriage, right? And some of you say, but that's so conservative, isn't it? Like if sex is so good, if it's to be enjoyed, if it's to be celebrated, uh, why not have sex with whoever we want? But that just shows that you don't understand the power or purpose of sex, really. Uh, In Song of Songs, uh, chapter 8, there's another verse where the woman says to her lover, this is the word she says, Song of Songs, chapter 8, she says, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. Right? She's not talking about the, the blubbery thing in the ocean, like a giant seal on her heart or on her arm. Like this, like it, she's talking about the, the kind of hot wax guarantee, like a seal. It's your signature. It's, it's rock-solid commitment. And so she, she's saying to her lover, I want rock-solid commitment from you before we have sex. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a, a seal on your arm. Or why is it that she wants that level of commitment? Well, she tells us, if you're reading Song of Songs, uh, she says it's because love burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. We all know that fire is good. It's the stuff of survival, right? It's precious, but only within certain boundaries. A fireplace, for example, that's a good spot for a fire to be. Likewise, sex is good, it's precious, but only within certain boundaries. Not because God's a killjoy, but because he wants to protect us. He knows that sex is, is too powerful to handle if it's let loose all over the place. So because God loves us, because he's good, he puts these boundaries in place so that people don't get hurt. So Jesus says it's not sex that's the problem, right? So sex is precious, it's lust that's the problem. And there's two main problems with lust. This is my second point. The first problem with lust is that lust is an impersonal sexual desire. It's impersonal. Jesus said, I'll read the verse again, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus happens to talk uh, about a man looking at a woman, uh, but it could easily be the other way around. The verse goes both ways. Uh, And notice that Jesus doesn't say uh, that you've obeyed this command if you're married, oh sorry, you've disobeyed this command if you're married and you uh, lust after another woman. He's not just talking to married people here. He's saying this command is not just about ticking the box. Yes, I've never committed adultery. That's something only a married person can do, right? It's about never entertaining, never dwelling, uh, never fantasising about the thought 
of having sex with anyone that you're not married to. And that's whether you're married or single. Never entertaining, never dwelling, never fantasising about the thought of having sex with anyone that you're not married to. That's lust. I see, God designed sex to be about two people becoming one. Not just one in body, but in body and soul. And so in that sense, both uh, what you might call an overly conservative view of sex, uh, where sex is dirty, sex is gross, sex is to be avoided, either that kind of view, uh, and the view, the overly progressive view of sex, where sex is just another biological appetite to be satisfied, both those views, uh, as far as the Bible is concerned, uh, are wrong. Either the overly conservative person, the traditional person, the the person who's very moralistic, who's very religious, uh, they're bought into the idea uh, that the body is bad and the soul is good. Uh, So they don't want to muddy up their marriage, their relationships by having sex too much. Right? They certainly don't want to enjoy it. Right? Do it. Maybe if you want to have a baby, kind of lock it in the calendar. But not too much. Not too much enjoyment because they want to be pure and sex is dirty, you see. Of course, what they're saying there is that they want to be united with someone in their soul but not in their body. And in saying that, they're going against God's design for sex, which is that two people would become one in body and soul. On the other hand, those so-called progressive people a more liberal person perhaps, they say, I want to be united to you in body, but not so much in soul. I'm happy to be physically one with you, but do I really want to be personally one with you? Legally, socially, emotionally, uh, completely and utterly for the rest of my life. Do I really want that? I'm not so sure. But let's have sex. So they too go against God's design for sex, which is two people becoming one in body and soul. So it's kind of funny, even though the conservatives and progressives often argue with one another, they hate one another, they're actually on the same page. Both of them want to be united with someone else in body or soul, but not in both. But it's really that progressive view that Jesus is particularly targeting uh, when he talks about lust here. Because what he's talking about is that when you lust after someone, you're fantasising about being physically one with them when you're not personally one with them. You're not married. You're not one with them in any other way. But you want to be one with them physically. And that, Jesus is saying, is a horrible distortion of God's precious gift of sex. Sex is supposed to be deeply personal, two people becoming one, but lust is completely impersonal. It dehumanises people. It objectifies people. It leads you to treat people not as precious creations in the image of God, to be loved and served and treasured, but as products to be consumed as commodities there uh, so that you can use them to fulfil your own bodily desires until you're done with them. 
So that's the first problem with lust. It's an impersonal sexual desire. Now, the second problem is that it's a disordered sexual desire. Uh, the word Jesus uses for lust uh, in this verse, it's not actually a sexual word as such, not explicitly. Uh, it's uh, sexual here, of course, because of the context, but really it refers to any desire that's out of control, it's something that's just out of control. It's disordered in some way. It could be a desire for money, for power, for success, for comfort, for possessions. Uh, here it's sex. And the word basically means that uh, we take something good, a, a precious gift from God, and we turn uh, that person, that thing, that experience uh, into, uh, into our God. We actually kind of do a substitute thing. And we, and we look to this thing, this experience, uh, for things that, that really only God can give. Uh, that's what's going on our, in your heart, in my heart, when we lust. We're turning God's good gift of sex into our God. So you might say to yourself, if only someone would love me. Like you're craving intimacy. You want someone to want you, to choose you. You want someone to think that you are the most beautiful person in the world. And you say to yourself, if only that happened, I'd be okay, I'd be complete, I'd be saved, I'd be fulfilled. You see what's happened there? You've turned sex and intimacy into your God. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with those desires. If you, but I just want you to know that if you're here today and you're single, I want you to know that even if you get married to the most beautiful person in the world and they think that you are the most beautiful person in the world, your deep desires for love, for intimacy, for beauty, for acceptance, they won't be satisfied. At least not fully. Because God put those desires in your heart to be satisfied ultimately in a relationship with him. So if you look to your husband or your wife or your soulmate or, or, or to some man or woman on the internet to complete or save or, or somehow fulfil you, that will not end well. Uh, typically one of two things happen. Uh, either you will be crushed because the person you thought was going to save you is just so disappointing. Like they just let you down all the time. And so you're crushed. Your God has let you down. Oh, on the other hand, if you know the other person, uh, they're probably crushed too. Because you've got these completely unreasonable expectations of them. You're expecting them to deliver what only God can deliver. No person can bear that weight. So the relationship doesn't go well. You are crushed and they are crushed. That's the problem with lust. It's an impersonal and disordered desire. So where do we find the power to experience at least some freedom from lust? Some greater freedom. Uh, well, let, let's read verses 29 and 30 again. Look at that passage, verses 29 and 30. Uh, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. 
It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Uh, So I want to give you three things that I think over time uh, will help you to to experience greater freedom from lust. Uh, The first one uh, is that you have to change the way you see lust. You've got to gouge out an old way of seeing lust. You've got to see lust for what it really is, as Jesus sees it. Because Jesus knows that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, uh, that you and I, uh, we tend to minimise lust. I said that about our culture, right? It's no big deal. Everyone's doing it. It's natural. And there's a bit of truth in that. But if you want to experience freedom from lust in any way, shape or form, you've got to see it as Jesus sees it. Uh, Jesus says, uh, uh, on one level, it's adultery against a person. That's a horrible thing to do. And on another level, it's adultery against God. You have these deep longings for love, for intimacy, for acceptance. But instead of satisfying them in a relationship with God, uh, you turn to this man or woman and you worship them. You cheat on God. It's the ultimate betrayal. In Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah says, Has a nation ever heard of such a thing, that that a nation would change its gods? Heaven and earth shudder. And yet that's what we do when we lust. And so that's the first thing. If you want to experience some freedom from lust... Uh, you have to gouge out your eye, change the way you see things. Jesus says it's far better for us to gouge out our eye and throw it away, right, to to lose one part of our body than for our whole body to be thrown into hell. Right? How do we understand this this language of of hell? Well, uh, remember, maybe one way to understand it, remember that that sexual desire is like a blazing fire. Song of Songs chapter 8, like a blazing fire, right? Sexual desire is good, it's precious, as long as it's in the fireplace. What's lust? Lust is a little ember popping out of your fireplace into your house and it starts a spot fire. Right? And we all know that if that happened, none of us would say, just relax, it's no big deal, just let it go. All of us would say, put that fire out immediately so that it doesn't destroy the whole house one day, you see. Jesus is saying that's how serious lust is. It's a little spot fire in your life. And if you don't put it out, one day it'll destroy everything about you. You'll disintegrate. That's hell. It starts now. So put it out, Jesus is saying. So we've got to change the way that we see lust. Gouge out our eye. Secondly, we've got to change, uh, we've got to cut off our hand, Jesus said. Right hand, that's to do with what you do. It's your it's your behaviour. So you do have to ask yourself, uh, where am I most tempted to lust? Should I avoid certain places? Should I get a filter on my computer? Should I get uh, someone to to talk to about it? Should I get a phone without a data plan? Should I stop reading those books or watching that show or seeing those movies? Like Those are important questions to ask. I'm not saying that those things in and of themselves will deal with lust. They won't. 
Uh, But I guess the point is that you can work as hard as you like on how you see lust, but if you spend all your time in places of real temptation, you won't get very far. And likewise, if you simply try to change what you do, but not how you see things, it won't get far. You have to do both. You have to change the way you see things, the way you see lust, and you have to change the way you do things, the the way you behave. Uh, But of course we've seen that the problem with lust, it's not just in our heads with with how we see things or, or think about things, and it's certainly not just in our hands with what we do. It's in our hearts, the desires of our hearts, the disordered desires of our hearts. So how is it uh, that things can go deeper? I'm sure some of you have had struggles with lust and yet you've tried kind of changing, you've tried some behaviour management, you've tried to to see things differently, uh, but it just hasn't gone deep enough because your your desires are still disordered. How do we experience that kind of change? Uh, Well, there's a guy named uh, Thomas Chalmers, uh, a Scottish preacher uh, in the 19th century, Uh, And he wrote a sermon, and in it he said uh, this. Let me read a quote. Uh, He said, The only way to dispossess the heart of an old love is by the expulsive power of a new love. It's only when admitted into the number of God's children through faith in Jesus Christ that the heart brought under the mastery of the one great and predominant love is delivered from the the slavery to its former desires. That's a bit wordy, okay? Maybe better if you had it in front of you. right? But his point is that it's only when your heart is truly mastered, you might have heard that word, truly mastered or controlled uh, by love for Christ, that you'll be set free from the slavery of former desires. Our hearts were designed, they're kind of desire factories, we've got all these desires in our hearts, And you've got to direct them somewhere. Some places you direct them are good and godly and glorious and other places are ugly. So you can't just kind of turn off the tap. The desire tap just keeps running. What you have to do is work out which things to direct your heart to. That's what he's saying. You've got to expel ungodly desires by replacing them with godly desires. Not saying don't desire, don't desire, don't desire, don't desire. That won't work. You've got to redirect your heart. Your heart's got to be filled with love for Christ. Now, some of you perhaps find that idea of, of loving Christ, a heart filled with love for Christ, to, to be foreign, something that, that's hard for you to connect with. Uh, because for you, uh, you, you kind of think about Christ as your king. That's the predominant category. He's your king, he's your Lord. And so most of your Christian life is in the categories of obeying and serving your king. And that's true. Those are very true things. Christ is your Lord. He is your King. Uh, But it's not the whole truth. And I think that's important when we tackle this kind of issue because the good news of the Gospel is that Jesus isn't just our King who's demanding obedience from us. Uh, He's our Bridegroom. He's the one who loves us. He loves you as His Bride. So in Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, uh, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish. 
Uh, I've been to a fair few weddings uh, in, in my line of work. I've even been up the front in some. It's kind of fun. And one of the moments I really love, and maybe it's a bit of a cliched moment, but you know that, that moment uh, when the bride enters the room. And what's the groom doing in that moment? They're, they're just kind of fixated on their bride. They love their bride. They, they think she's beautiful. They want her. They've chosen her. They're, they're captivated by her. Well, the gospel says that Jesus isn't just our king. He's our bridegroom. He's your bridegroom. He loves you. He, he chose you. He wants you. And how do you know that? Well, you know it because he was willing to make the ultimate commitment to you. Not just signing some marriage certificate with a pen. Right? That's a good thing to do. But binding himself to you by his very blood shed on the cross. So that he would be your lover, your bridegroom. So that by faith in him, you can not only be forgiven of your sins. Uh, Ephesians 5 says you can be washed clean of your sins. You can be cleansed of your sins. And that's good news, isn't it, for all us who struggle with lust? He promises to wash us clean of every lustful thought, of every lustful desire, of every sexual stain or wrinkle or blemish. Everything cleansed. So that one day at the only wedding that really matters, uh, he will have made us more beautiful than we could ever imagine. He will have restored us to, to our full radiance and beauty. That's what Ephesians 5 is saying. And I think the more your heart is captured by these kind of truths, the more your heart is captured by love, uh, the love of Christ and love for Christ, uh, the more the disordered lusts of your heart will be reordered. They'll be put in their place. So you'll be able to enjoy sex for what it is. You'll be able to enjoy sexual desire for what it is. But it won't run rampant in your life in a way that's destructive or enslaving. Over time, you'll experience greater freedom from lust because your heart has been won by Christ. Your heart is, is captured uh, by the beauty of Christ. Uh, let's pray. Uh, our gracious Father, um, you know our hearts better than we know ourselves. Uh, you know the things that uh, we hide from others are the ways that we engage in these lustful thoughts and desires and practices. Uh, you know how we feel stained and wrinkled and blemished in all sorts of ways. Uh, we thank you for the good news that our Lord Jesus died on the cross, that we could be not just forgiven of our sins, but to be washed clean in every way and presented one day to him as his bride who he loves uh, in our full radiance and beauty. Lord God, please help these deep truths to, to grip our hearts more and more deeply each day. That the loves of our heart might be redirected uh, to our Lord Jesus Christ. And that all our other desires would over time fall into place in their rightful place. Lord God, help us to, to think about how we see lust. To think about whether it's more in line uh, with what your word says or, or with what our culture says. And help us, Lord, to ask the hard questions about what we do, how we live, yeah, if that's going to be a helpful part uh, of experiencing greater freedom from lust and being your distinctive people. Uh, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.